0: Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. Last week we left off with 1 Samuel chapter 18. And if you remember, everything David touches turns to gold. Excuse me. Every single time he goes out to war, he comes back successful Every time he comes back successful, King Saul grows more and more irritated at David. To the point to where he has tried to pin him to the wall a couple of different times. But it was kind of secretive, like it happened in the house, like in the palace, not really out in public. H.G. Wells, prolific English writer, the early 1900s, wrote a book called The History of Mr. Polly. In the book, he describes the main character, Mr. Polly, by saying this, he was not so much a human being as a civil war. That's King Saul. King Saul is a civil war. A war, you know people who are like this, who inside of them, you can tell, like it's, there's something deep going on. King Saul is this guy. He is volatile. He's wishy-washy. One minute he loves David and he's so thankful for him. The next minute he's got a javelin in his hand and he's trying to pin him to the wall. He finally comes to David and he says, with all of his scheming mind, I will give you my daughter to to marry if you will collect for me a specific memento um, belonging to a hundred different Philistines. David goes out and he returns with 200 of those mementos. If you're curious about what those mementos are, you go ahead and you read that in chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 18. Um, they'd be fun for you for this afternoon. Um, and he returns with 200 of these mementos. And he overdoes it. Then, first chap- then 1 Samuel chapter 18 ends by saying this. The Philistine commanders continued. Oh no, let me, let me start 28. 1 Samuel 18, verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Verse 30, the, Philistines, the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became, well, no. Then there's a shift. Like I said, every single time David succeeds, Saul takes the success personal. It's not much different than when you see somebody who you know or love, and then all of a sudden they're given a a big dose of inheritance money, and you're like, I mean, maybe you're not, but you're thinking, really? It's going to be gone in five seconds, you know? They come upon something. Somebody just gets this thing. Saul is looking just bitter at David. His success, his wisdom, and he knows why. It's because God is with him. And he resents God and he resents David. Then things change. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. David. What began as just envy in the heart of King Saul, like we talked about the last couple of weeks, anger, malice, jealousy, envy, these things are not something separate than murder. They are just the embryos of murder. And because Saul could not dispose of this anger in the, in the, in the deep corners and crevices of his heart, it grew, and it lashed out, and it became the very thing that would send David on a run for his life for the next 8 to 15 years. Running for his life from King Saul. David has now become public enemy number one. The posters are everywhere. Wanted, David of Bethlehem dead. Just dead. Inasmuch as I would love to walk through every single aspect of David's life. I don't think we have time for that, and I also think you would be bored. I would love it, you would probably be very bored. But what I want to do is this I want to take three events over the next course of, we're not sure, scholars say anywhere between eight and 15 years. I want to take three events and I want to pull them out of Scripture, and I want to show you some things that are there today's message is the three things that men must wrestle with. The three things that men must wrestle with. There are things in our life we cannot just button them up and put them away. They will always be on the table and we will always have to wrestle with these things. The very first thing that I want to point out comes from 1 Samuel chapter 24. Saul has already lost his son Jonathan to David. David. He has lost his daughter, Michael, to the love of David. He has lost the loyalty of his troops to the leadership of David. And what Saul's going to experience in the next decade or so is this slow release, this slow tugging out of his hand as his fingers are pried apart one by one where David will take the throne, the crown, the scepter, and the kingdom as a whole. He will take them all from Saul. Saul. But this won't happen quickly, which is a frustration to me when I read through the life of David. You remember where he was when he was called to be king, right? Minding his own business. Did did he sign up? Hey, God, you know what I was hoping for? Maybe run. I was watching these sheep. I was hoping for something more exciting. Maybe I could run for my life for the next 15 years. How about it? No, he did not. But you know what happens when you mess around with Jesus too long? This. This is exactly what happens. If you don't want your life turned upside down, I mean, in this way, you should probably avoid Jesus as best you can. Because as soon as you get near him, it's this thing that just happens. He wants to make you better, and he just won't leave it alone. He just won't leave it alone. 1 Samuel chapter 24. David is now running for his life. This is event number one that I want to point out. Running for his life. 1 Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He will not stop pursuing David until he's dead. Now, here's what's interesting. David is in this place. He has heard, Saul has heard that David is there and he is hidden in this place. Now, if you want some, something fun to do this afternoon, type in um, caves near en Look up en and then like look at the pictures. Here's what you find. It's like a needle in a haystack. Like there's so many caves, so many caverns, so many hills, so many gullies, so many wadis. There's so many places to hide there. But listen to what happens. He came to the sheep pens along the way. The cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day. This is what the Lord spoke of. When he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you deal with him as you wish. Now, here's what's interesting. That's never recorded anywhere in scripture, that phrase. His men are telling him, it's just like God said. You can kill him whenever you want. Only here's the deal. We don't have any proof of that ever being said. None whatsoever. It's kind of like when we say like, well, God, if you don't want me to, then you better stop me. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? I'm going to go buy this new car. If you don't want me to, you better stop me. <laughs> oh, well, that's convenient, isn't it? What are, what are you hoping for? A disaster? What well, is it? Dumb prayer. Hey, listen, it's just like the Lord said. Did the Lord say that? I don't know, but go with it. You know, get him if you want to get him. I mean, you deserve it. You deserve it. You see, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a time period to where we all feel like we're pretty deserving of everybody to be nice to me all the time. Don't make me uncomfortable. I deserve to be treated nicely all the time, always. It's like when we rush into the school. My cat's getting bullied. My cat's getting bullied. I think to myself, that is so dumb. Then my daughter comes home and she's like, you know what happened at school? I'm like, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. We all have this mindset, like, well, this, is, this is out of control. I'm going to get somebody. We feel pretty special. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands. You will deal with him as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Can you see the, how the Civil War has translated? How the Civil War has been transferred over? Now, David is maybe in this place of, maybe they're right. Maybe it's time to end this. I mean, I deserve, I deserve to be in a place where I don't have to run for my life all the time. This is wrong. This is an injustice. Hold on, time out. Time out. David creeps up and he cuts off the hem of his robe. It's funny, the Hebrew word is wing. Cuts off the wing of his robe. So here's the deal. If you're poor, then your robe didn't have a hem on it. It just frayed. If you're more wealthy, it might have a folded hem. If you're even more wealthy than that, then it would be a hem with some embroidery on it. But if you're royalty, it would be very, very, very elaborate. It would be big and maybe even kind of poofy and layered. And he sneaks up and cuts off these royal tassel, hymns, off of King Saul's robe while Saul is relieving himself. That, my friends, is a ninja. (laughs) Like, I'm telling you what, like that, that's pretty sneaky. That's pretty sneaky. Saul, David returns afterward. David was, this is verse 5, chapter 24, verse 5. David was conscience stricken. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. And everybody is like, get him! Just go get him. Get him, like, just just a few. Just get him. It's over. You can go back to your hometown, and it's all over. All you got to do is get him. And his own men are like, you're insane. Like, I'm done following you. Can you imagine how this could all just upend right here? Even his own men are like, just, what, why are we here? I'm away from my family, risking my life with you, and you can end this, and you're not. I'm killing myself. And David says, no one's going to kill anybody. Wait. There's always somebody with a conscience, you know? Like, I don't think we should do that. <laughs> we were fine till you showed up. And David's like, no, I can't do it. I cannot do it. This was wrong. That was wrong of me. To cut off, that's wrong of me. That's God's man. That's God's man. Mm, That takes some guts right there. David can take it no longer. Verse 8. Then David went out to the mouth of the cave and he called, My Lord, the king. And Saul looked behind him. David bowed down, prostrated himself with his face to the ground and he said, Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord has delivered you into my hands but I spared you I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider the cause, my cause, and uphold it. May he, vind- may he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David? My son? Do you remember the song, A Boy Named Sue? Do you remember how it ends? It kind of has this line of like, I hit him right across the teeth, right across the face with a chair or something along this line. And then we wrestled and we fought through the mud and the blood and the beer. He bit like a mule. I mean, he kicked like a mule, and he bit like a crocodile. And then at the end, there's this little altercation, this little conversation, and it says, I'm the one that named you Sue. The reason I named you Sue is because I knew I wasn't going to be there for you, and you were going to either have to get tough or die. And so before you kill me, and I don't blame you if you do, you need to thank me because I'm the dirty blankety-blank that named you Sue. The next line is something along the lines of I got all choked up and I threw down my gun. I called him a paw, and he called me a son. We were killing one another a moment ago. That's <laughs> my daddy. That's how we got there? This man's been chasing you for years, David, for real? And now you're just like, father, for real? Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I. He said, You have treated me well, and I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he not let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now, Swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave this oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. <sighs> finally. Finally. We are at peace. Now, maybe David can move forward with what God wants him to do Here's the unfortunate turn of events here. Just like H.G. Wells said of Mr. Polly, he is less of a human being and more a civil war. The The same exact exchange that happened here will happen in a few more chapters, almost identical. And Saul will swear not to try to kill David again, and David won't trust him. And Saul will continue to pursue him. Second event that I want to point out happens in 2 Samuel. We're going to jump to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Turn back a couple pages. 1 Samuel chapter 31. We'll go there first. 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the Israelites fled before them. And many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed harder after Saul and his sons and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together. That same day. Now it's over. Kinda. But there is a, a moment of reprieve. And there should be. If your arch enemy, who's been chasing you, hunting you down, trying to kill you for years, finally he is dead, what is the normal reaction? I mean, too bad, so sad. But like, I'm tired of running. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Check this out. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that all the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow verse 19 second samuel chapter 1 verse 19 your glory o israel lies slain on your heights how the mighty have fallen tell it not in gath proclaim it not in the streets of ashkelon lest the daughters of the philistines be glad lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice o mountain of gilboa may you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain for there the shield of the mighty was defiled the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, in life, they were loved and gracious, and in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. Are you freaking kidding me? I have no good thing to say about an enemy that chases me that long and David writes a song and forces the nation to memorize it. Event number 3. Chapter 5 of 2nd Samuel. David is finally made the king of Israel and Judah. Tribal tribal areas Israel and Judah and he is now the king of both places. Which are all God's people but there was a schism Chapter 5, he becomes the king, becomes king over Israel, and he is there. He is finally in place. Now, I need you to jump forward just a little bit to chapter 9. I want you to see this because this is where, to me, men must wrestle with these very things that David is just blowing out of the water. David is in the palace. Uh, Let me go up. Let me read uh, chapter 8, 2 Samuel 8, verse 15, right above 9. David reigned over all of Israel doing what was just and right for all the people. Joab, son of Ruai, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, uh, son of uh, Ahilad, was the recorder. Zadok and Ahitab and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. And so we get this whole idea, like he is there. He is in it. He is in the, he's in the palace. He is settled. Chapter 9. David asked. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's, a a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. He called him to appear before David, and the king said, Are you Ziba and your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is a, he is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, "He is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel, in Lodabar." So King David said to him, So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, "Mephibosheth, your servant." He replied, "Don't be afraid." David said to him, For I will surely show you the kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all that the land belonged to your grandfather Saul, and, will, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you would notice a dead dog like me? David goes even further. He calls the servant of Saul. Zeba, and he says, "I'm going to make you now the servant of Jonathan, and you will serve under Jonathan because Jonathan is now going to be—I mean, not Jonathan. I'm sorry. Mephibosheth is going to be at my table, and you will serve underneath him." And from the rest of the days, look over here on, uh, let's see, verse 12, chapter 9. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Zeba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. Do you feel like do you feel weak? like as a man? do you feel like like I don't do things good? Like this is, this is incredible stuff. So what are the three things that men must wrestle with? Number one, we must wrestle with our mindset and the concept of revenge. We must wrestle with the concept of revenge. If you think about every single movie that we love and that we talk about, every single book, they're all built off of the idea of revenge. The Count of Monte Cristo. Good one. Have you seen the movie Sleepers? Good one. Gladiator, did you like that? Braveheart? The list goes on. True Grit? Memento? goes on and on and on. They're all about vengeance. And for us, we kind of associate to this thing of like, you know, why? Because it's kind of like justifiable action. Now we can like extract violence on somebody, right? I mean, exact violence on somebody and be justified by it. We like these stories. This makes us happy. We like the idea. Revenge is tricky, though. Revenge puts us in a place to where we kind of have to check ourselves a little bit. We love the idea of thinking about, I would love to defend my family, defend my wife, defend my kids, defend the defenseless. Would love to be in that place. To go after somebody for something that they did wrong. Being a bounty hunter was kind of on my list of things I wanted to do if I wasn't going to be a preacher. <laughs> I want to get somebody. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Do my, my head, you know, get somebody. Like Dog the Bounty Hunter. Only without the mullet. Like I'ma get somebody, you know? <laughs> like that's the way in my mind, like that'd be fun. But revenge is dangerous. Romans chapter twelve says this. Romans twelve, nineteen, do not take revenge, my m- revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Yeah, but See, we spend so much time talking about God as forgiving and loving that we oftentimes kind of forget the idea that God is vengeful and wrathful and has that that side. Because we kind of feel like God's kind of like a grandpa or a Santa Claus. And he just doesn't get too bent out of shape about too many things. Oh, he's so forgiving. God is also wrathful. You know what part of the problem is and why I think we don't see that very often? is because we get in the way. God, get him. Too late, I'm getting him. We get in the way. Oh, and I, lo- I love it. I love those movies. I love that idea. If something were to happen, I'm gonna go get somebody. I'll paint my face with blood or something. And you pull some guns out that I don't even own big guns, but get some? Go fight like that is so cool. But you know where revenge is always showing up in my life? And my guess is for most of you men, same place for you. Where revenge really shows up the strongest, it's not at the bar. It's at home. It's a home. Read that feeling when she gets you on some gets you, pulls that thing, pushes that button, says those words, why don't you just man up? Those phrases? When you feel rejected? When you feel like she has either humiliated you or caused you to feel in such a way that you were less than? Or she takes advantage of you? Have you ever had that feeling of, I'm a getter? You think that's bad? Watch this. Silent treatment, which at my house I don't do the silent treatment very well, as you can imagine. (laughs) Like, you get the silent treatment. That's as far as I can go. We got to talk this thing out or I'm going to lose it. And this is where we go. And then we hold it over each other's head. The very same person who we stood in front of a preacher or, or, a, or a court official or a judge or somebody, and we signed our names, and we said, I will love you and cherish you and care for you, and I promise you, that has been the last person that you spoke to nasty in, in probably a year, was that person. Revenge. Kind of sucks, doesn't it? I came at that person like, that's it? Dudes. Do you know how weak I felt when I started writing this out? And I was like, oh, gosh, me? Like, I am right there with you. The very person who I promised to love and to cherish and to care for, that's the person I exact more revenge on than anyone. Be it ever so small, we find a way to retaliate, to get them back. Here's the problem men our standard of living inside of our marriage is different than our wives our standard is different it's a sin for us to exact revenge on our wife, it's a sin you mean she can get me? she can is she wrong? sure she's wrong Well, she can get you but you have a responsibility in all of this your responsibility is this Colossians 3:19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Strike one. 1 <laughs> Peter 3:7. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing hinders your prayers. Strike two. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her strike three. It's too easy. If we're going to be the godly men that he has called us to be, we have to get this revenge thing out of our hearts see the reason it hurts when there is an offense inside of a marriage is because there was a contract that said i'm going to be vulnerable to you you're going to be vulnerable to me and we're going to be delicate with one another's emotions and feelings and then somewhere in the mix of it we got tired we got lazy we got distracted and somebody reached in and pulled a knife and gouged somebody else and it might not have been a mortal wounding but it hurt and it hurt me in the pride and that's an offense my responsibility, my position as a Christian is to say, that's okay. My contract was with God. My contract was with God. that I will love her and I will care for her. And see, men, if we get revenge out of our heart here, we get revenge out of our life everywhere. No one can hurt you like your spouse. No one. When we get to that place, to where we learn how to be gentle, Here's what happens. We will fulfill our end of the contract because that's what God has asked us to do. And in time, they will also fulfill the contract. You know what's interesting is this verse in 1 uh, in Peter where it says, the weaker vessel, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. You know what that is right there? Weaker vessel, porcelain vase. not cast-iron skillet. Porcelain vase. We have to wrestle with revenge. The second thing we have to wrestle with as men is resentment. We have to wrestle with resentment. Job 5.2 says this, Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. It's interesting that this word resentment only happens one time in the New Testament. It's in 1 Timothy, and it's Paul writing to Timothy... About the elders of the church And what they are supposed to be The elders of the church Are supposed to be these things Here's the verse Elder must be blameless Faithful to his wife A man whose children believe And are not open to the charge Of being wild and disobedient Since an overseer Manages God's household He must be blameless Not overbearing And the NIV translates this Not quick tempered But the word is Not resentful Not resentful Not given to drunkenness Not violent Not pursuing dishonest gain the elders of the church must fulfill these things one of the things that they must fulfill is they cannot be resentful why because if you're in a leadership position and you grow resentful of somebody else you stand between them and the gospel message and our goal as a church is to extend the gospel message not to put ourselves between it john the baptist was the one who said make all of the mountains low Raise the valleys up. Remove all the things out of the way so that people can get to the gospel. When we are resentful, it stands in the way. Here's what else happens. When you have resentment in your heart, you have this thing to where you offer them a piece of your life and they have power over you. Here's another thing. When you have resentment in your heart and in your life, there's also this this thing to where any thought of them can move into your life and then distract you And derail your emotions and your actions You can't even carry out God's will Because you're so contaminated and tainted By the resentment that's in your own heart But that's not the part I want to talk about The part I want to talk about is this And this excites me a bunch How in the world could David Sit down and write a poem About Jonathan and Saul A song and make everybody memorize it And talk about they were both loved and gracious Swift Like eagles Powerful like lions. About Jonathan, yes. Are you with me on that? Like Jonathan was a friend to David. I can see this. Why Saul? Tell you why. Because if you will allow, if you will allow it, when your enemy moves into your life, somebody offends you, somebody complicates your business, we oftentimes Remove God from that equation as if God had nothing to do with that happening. When the truth of the matter is this, God has allowed that to happen in your life and we understand from the book of Romans that anything that goes on in your life is for the betterment of your spiritual development. So what you have to do then is lean on God even more in those times of disaster as your enemy pushes into you, chases you, pushes you causes you all sorts of stress in your life, complicates your situation, and you find yourself in that place of, I wish they weren't in my life, and God is like, no, 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 no. They are there for a reason. They are improving one aspect of your life that I could not fix in any other way. Thus, we discount God. We we pull him out of the equation when the truth of the matter is this. Your best friend and most encouraging confidant can bring about spiritual development on an amazing level. And so can your enemy, if you will allow it. What pushed you into the arms of God? Your enemy. What pushed you into that place of making new decisions? Your enemy. What caused you to be more disciplined in prayer? Your enemy. Thus, in the spiritual mind, the heart of a Christian, we hold our enemy and we hold our friend up in the same place and say, had it not been for them, I wouldn't be who I am now. That's our position. We must wrestle with resentment. And it's not easy. We hold that stuff out there and we hold on to it tight. But it's true. Third one's this we must wrestle with redemption. David looks into the life of, of he looks back on his own life and he says, Is there anyone from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? This this wonderful action. where he finds there is a crippled grandson of King Saul. He's living as a peasant and he brings him in and he puts him at his table and he says, you will always be at my table. You will always eat with me. You know a verse I think about from the Psalms? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I wonder if that's Mephibosheth. I wonder if David writes this about Mephibosheth. My life has been put together so well that I am in a place now to where I am eating dinner with my enemy and it's all okay. God is good. There's a picture here. You see, anytime you get on Pinterest and you say to yourself, I think I want to make a project. Most husbands are like, sweet. Sweet you mean I'm going to make a project. (laughs) We should make a snowman out of cardboard and plywood. We should paint it, get a hat, staple a scarf on it. Yeah, 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 we should. I can't think of anything else I'd love to do with my time than that. Love to. Do not be harsh with her. Live with your wife. Be gentle. Awesome, I'd love to, babe. (laughs) Anytime we do that, and we set out to create something, we are impersonating our maker. God was a creator. In the beginning, God created. He makes us, when we step out to do that same thing, we are made in the image of God. We are doing exactly what we're supposed to do. Here's what else is cool. That's not the only cool thing that he has given us. God also is a redemptive God with redemptive um, creativity. So when he sees something that's broken, he does this thing to where he makes it new. Again, you do the same thing. Do you remember this whole craze with pallets? Everybody and their mother wanted to make a sofa out of a pallet. Everybody, or a flag, or a, I don't even know what else. Furniture, a wine rack. I mean, why? Because there's this thing in us that says, I wonder if I could take this piece of junk and turn it into something cool. Where do you think you got that? From God, and David is exercising this very same thing. Is there some place that I can show the kindness to Saul's family because of Jonathan? Is there a, where can I where can I put this generosity that's in my heart? How about Mephibosheth? He's a crippled guy who lives down the road, and he's the last remaining relative. How about him? And he brings him in, and he puts him at his table. Now. You should have little spiritual antennas trying to sprout right through your hair follicles right now. Tuning into something that maybe is a picture of something else that's, that's in the future. Because there's, there's this idea that I am crippled. I am broken. And then there's a king. There's a king who's looking for me. Who's saying... I want to reach out and I want to show kindness to the relatives of my greatest enemy. And Jesus Christ shows up and he marches into my life. He's the king. And he marches into my life and he says, I want you in my life. And you know what else is really cool? Is there's this whole idea of a banquet. And Revelation says this, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock And if you would let me in, we will sup together. We will eat together. And forever Mephibosheth sat at the table of David in a place that he did not belong. And see, for us, we have to look around our life and we have to ask this question. Are there people around us who are broken, who need a hand? Are there people around us whose relationships are busted and they need somebody to love them? are the people around us who they need some sort of love in their life, even if they are the relative of one of your enemies. Can we look around and see those people? And see, here's what's crazy. Oftentimes our enemies nowadays are mostly family. It's mostly family. Maybe God is calling us to that place of saying, You need to wrestle with this idea of redemption if you're going to be like God.